Starbucks soars in China, and AI isn't showing up for AMD quite yet. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined over the airwaves by Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma. Asit, thanks for joining me. Dylan, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, the uh, the beat is on for earnings season, at, at least for some companies, and so we are going to be spending most of our time diving through company results. We've got updates on Starbucks, Pinterest, and AMD. Asit, let's kick off with Starbucks. Uh, company's same store sales grew 10%. Double digit growth seems impressive for a company this size. But it was below expectations. And it seemed like looking at the results for this company, North America was starting to weigh a little bit on the results. Yes and no, Dylan. Weighing on results in terms of expectations that the market has. But I read this report with you know a lot of good takeaways that 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 impressed me. First, they were able to generate 7% comparable sales growth. Now, I know that's under what analysts were expecting, but when you think about how big and how penetrated Starbucks is in North America, that's a still still pretty decent result. I mean, we're seeing some growth in levels that are matched with pre-pandemic sales. So, if you look at unit volume, management was talking about how that's really starting to take off again. They're having high attach rates, so attaching food to beverages in day parts that are outside of breakfast. I think all that is um, positive for them. But you had a question when we were prepping for this about well, I'll, I'll let you get to this question. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the results here, and I see, you know, we see customer traffic of one percent growth in North America, uh, store count up three percent. Those are adjustments down, I think, from where this company's been growing for a while. Is is North America officially a mature market for Starbucks? You know, it, it's it's at that point where you can see the arthritis might start to kick in in a few years, but I still think it's just shy of being a mature market. Management talked about some interesting trends. For example, if you look outside the major metropolitan areas, Starbucks is still relatively underpenetrated. So the smaller format stores that they are now very good at popping up can be sort of salted in across the US map. I think also the delivery business that Starbucks has in North America is is getting stronger. Management talked about nearing a billion dollars worth of incremental business out of that. And I also think that just this move towards the technology that serves the customer and makes throughput easier in a post-pandemic world is working out nicely and still has room to grow in North America. We seem to be have been trained to want our beverages faster. So the changes that uh, Starbucks has made in store design, in ordering via app, and upping its loyalty program. Although I know some people are going to agree hearing that because it did change a little bit of the, the stars equation, but at least broadening that out to more customers, all those are playing into some momentum uh, that still is there to take in North America. I don't think it's quite a mature market yet. It is getting there. One market that has been incredibly impressive for Starbucks is China. Uh, it is the company's second largest market. Same store sales in China skyrocketed 46% during the quarter asset. Um, is the international story, and in particular, the China story, increasingly a part of how we need to be looking at this business? I think so, Dylan. And that's both from an opportunity side and a risk side. I mean, opportunity side, very clear to see. China is a massive market. 
Starbucks has a special place in China because they very slowly and gradually and smartly built that brand. So unlike other outside brands uh, outside of China, it's been able to maintain a lot of cachet. Couple that with a consumer spend dynamic in which there's a faltering recovery from China's COVID shutdowns, factory activity is lower, export activity is decreasing, the consumer doesn't want to travel abroad as much. Those occasions at a Starbucks become more important to a Chinese consumer. It's something that can still be afforded. It's a little pleasure. We saw that trajectory here in, in the US years ago. So there is a lot of opportunity. There's white space in China. Management talked about the fact that the average consumer in China consumes only 12 cups of coffee a year versus 380 cups a year where we're chugging it here in the United States. That itself can you know, point to how comparable sales could keep growing there. But there's China risk. I mean, this is obviously a market that is rising in its risk profile with the geopolitical tensions in the United States. So, you know, that, that Alka-Seltzer, I keep wanting to drop into my coffee when I think about the China opportunity, something we're going to have to grapple with for a long time. Those of us who own shares of Starbucks as, as I happen to. Safe to say you're probably having more than 12 cups of coffee a year. Asit. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a, those are bad numbers for a week for me, uh, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners as well. Let's switch gears and, and talk about a company that's uh, near and dear to my heart, because it's in my portfolio, uh, and that's, that's Pinterest. A uh, company reported top-line beat and an adjusted earnings beat. Numbers came in pretty good, over $700 million in revenue, 6% growth. Uh, we saw some monthly active user growth for this platform. Asit, I'm curious, where is this company right now, and what what is the story for this company? Because I have owned it, and I know a lot of people that follow The Fool have owned it as well, expecting this monetization story to materialize. And it seems like there are hints of it, but it hasn't fully happened. Dylan, I think this is a business model that we're just going to have to be patient with. What makes you want to be patient with a company like Pinterest? Well, it's got 465 million uh, users on a monthly basis around the, the globe. So this is a company that's been able to establish this huge base. They're a very loyal base. And they're also, I think, a base that is sticky enough that the monetization efforts will happen over time. This company talks about its most active cohort of users, and they're not millennials. It's actually Gen Z. So the youngest cohort of consumers out in the market today is actually the most active on Pinterest. That means some of the experiments that Pinterest is working on can play out over a long period of time. Now, I know that uh, average revenue per user doesn't look that great. It's not growing that much. It's heavily tilted towards the US and Canada out of um, just reading these last statistics out of an ARP of $1.53, $5.92 of that comes out of the US and Canada. Why is the, the aggregate number lower? Because the rest of the world monetizes at such a small rate. But um, they've got some interesting monetization opportunities ahead. I'll pause here. You know, maybe, maybe we can talk about these a bit, but but your thoughts as a shareholder on the monetization opportunities. Yeah, I always felt like this was a business that didn't need to meaningfully grow its user count to provide some compelling top line growth just because 
you know, when I first bought it, and when I think a lot of people first started paying attention to this company, that ARPU number was even lower than what you just threw out there, Asset. So, you know, if they were to reach parity or even a fraction of what we see from the likes of Meta and some of the other social advertisers out there, there seemed like a pretty good opportunity there. One of the things I wanted to talk about, I know like there's a long-term growth story there is short-term, and as we look out for the rest of 2023, Asset, we've seen some mixed signals in the digital advertising business. Um, we've seen some weaker advertiser demand on one side, but we've also seen some companies say, you know, we expect things to start getting a little rosier as we get to the back half of the year, especially that holiday quarter. How are you looking at some of those forces for a business like Pinterest? I think Pinterest will uh, benefit as digital advertising rebounds. I don't know how much benefit we'll get in the next two quarters, but there's certainly stuff underway where you can see as that market rebounds, you'll get some more monetization from Pinterest. They have this technology called MDL or mobile deep linking, which is pretty nifty if you're an advertiser. Basically, uh, Pinterest can send a user straight to your app where they have to sign up. So it's an argument from Pinterest side, they can do something that other platforms can't. They can get you new users. Someone on Pinterest who's a loyal user can follow a, a mobile deep link and have to sign up on an advertiser's app. And I think that's pretty powerful. As for you know what's going to happen beyond the next two quarters. So let's say that digital advertising rebounds towards year end, we get a little bit of holiday bump, but Pinterest doesn't see it. Just, just beyond that window, though, I see some interesting things. This partnership with Amazon that's currently in test mode where you know Amazon products now will be able to be advertised uh, over the Pinterest platform. I think that's going to be very powerful. And that's certainly, as you look into 2024, could be one of those gears that starts to finally turn. We see something tangible, some, some development there. And I don't think it'll take much. Once investors get the idea that this long-held belief that the company should be able to monetize is starting some, to show some tangible results. I think that could perk this stock up a little bit. So maybe a latent period, but we should see something out of this company. I would think in the next several quarters that gets investors a little more excited. And it again, won't take much. It'll be a small lever, but Pinterest hasn't been able to show any kind of like tangible progress so far. I, I just feel patience is is key here. Well, the listeners out there that have have a basis on this one close to my or mine is in the high twenties probably pretty happy to hear something like that. Asset. Our final story on earnings today is going to be AMD, um, and this is an interesting business because it seems to me like a little bit of a company at a crossroads. Asset. We see this business coming up a lot in AI conversations. But looking at the results they're reporting right now, revenue drop of 18% in the fiscal second quarter. Uh, a big part of the reason seemed to be weak PC sales pushing that revenue decline. Totally. I think that AMD is a proxy for the larger semiconductor market. And that is currently a story of decreased demand and, in some parts of the semiconductor market, just oversupply. Everyone was conversant with, with these dynamics towards the end of last year, but with the explosion of generative AI and the opportunity that some companies like AMD have, it's really become a backburner conversation. But these earnings you know, tell that story, Dylan, uh, decreased demand for uh, 
GPUs, decreased demand for gaming, decreased demand for PCs. You have a client segment revenue for AMD that was down 54%, as you point out, to just under a billion dollars. That really pulls down some other success that the company has been having. So it's data center segment revenue. While that was down 11% year over year, it's starting to build for, I think, an uptick next year. And also, I think these um, smaller markets that AMD plays in competition with NVIDIA, I think it's, it's starting to gain some ground. You wouldn't know it by the numbers, but automotive and test emulation, that market could be promising for them in the future. But again, I think investors are really focused on the AI opportunity, which is latent right now. We're going to wait probably another two quarters to see some real opportunity coming out of this MI300 uh, GPU series. So that is the product to watch for this segment. Beyond specifically that product line, Asset, is there anything else you're paying attention to, whether it's AMD or any of the providers in this space, with who is really gaining traction with AI applications? For me, it's not just the uh, opportunities to offer compelling GPU alternative to, say, NVIDIA. For AMD, it's going to be about speed. This is where NVIDIA excels, because it also offers acceleration libraries for its GPUs. And this is what I think AMD is going to have to prove out in its thesis. When you extrapolate this idea that speed is important because it helps the customer's ROI, you can see how any tangible competitor to, say, NVIDIA in this space is going to have to show uh, some kind of return on the investment that both small companies and large companies are going to make if they buy this software directly. And I think AMD has some early interest from hyperscalers. So while the jury is still out on how much of an edge it can gain, how much share it could start to take from NVIDIA, it's going to take some time. Ultimately, big, big players, small players, medium-sized enterprises are going to get beyond the excitement phase, and they're going to start asking very compelling questions. Okay, if I'm using your chips, if I'm using your silicon, does this help me train my models more cheaply, or is this something that doesn't give me any kind of edge in the marketplace? So we're going to very quickly move from excitement to a realistic appraisal of what kind of benefit the semiconductor industry is offering to its end users, its consumers who want to train their models. So this is the where the rubber meets the road portion of the hype cycle asset. Yeah, you said it much more succinctly and better. I should I should have just said that, Dylan. <laughs> well, you'll be along with us to report back as we see the cycle continue. Uh, Asit, thank you so much for joining me to talk through these earnings. Thanks a lot for having me, Dylan. Coming up, we've got a case of a company that you think does one thing, but really should be on your radar for something else. Deidre Woolard caught up with Yasser Elshimi for a look at Saab. You know them as a car company, but there's more to the story. Hello, I'm Deidre Woolard here today with Motley Fool analyst Yasser Elshimi. How are you doing today, Yasser? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm excited to talk to you today about a company that I have not thought about. Uh, I, I don't think at all, and so that's I, I love being the, in this position of being the total newbie. You've been doing some work lately on international companies, and this one is intriguing. Saab. Now, when I hear Saab, I'm thinking about the convertibles my rich friends drove in the '90s. This isn't that, right? 
No, it isn't. And uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, Saab, when I was first introduced to that company, uh, I think I was in college, and I remembered it being Jerry Seinfeld's favorite car. <laughs> so that was kind of its claim to fame for me, and has and, you know, and I had just didn't think about it that much since uh, until recently when I started kind of digging in uh, into the defense sector uh, globally. Uh, I've been following kind of obviously with interest the, um, and concern the events in Ukraine and how the world. Uh, has been responding to that and, and the various geostrategic developments. And one company that did ca catch my attention was Saab, a Swedish defense company that actually has a history that goes back into the late 1930s. Started kind of at the beginnings of World War II when the Swedish Air Force uh, could not source uh, its fighter jets that it wanted uh, from the United States. You know, we've had our we had our hands busy at the mm -hmm. time, and so they decided to invest in building domestic production. And Saab was born um, and has been going on since. They kind of expanded into automobiles after World War II. In 1990, they sold the automobile division to General Motors uh, to uh, just focus on being the defense company that they are now, selling weapon systems, uh, including jet fighters, missiles, radar systems, electronic warfare equipment ocean minesweepers, torpedoes. I could go on, but <laughs> yeah, so they, they are a diversified Sweden-based defense company. Interesting. Yeah, we don't think of, of Sweden as being a uh, as really being a very militaristic or military country. Not at all, and that's perhaps one reason why we have not been thinking about Saab very much, um, because Sweden's let's say geopolitical role in the world on the world stage is fairly limited mm -hmm. compared to bigger you know countries with bigger militaries with more operations overseas and so on, and that has had its kind of effect uh, over time also. On Saab's development as a defense company, limiting kind of the number of let's call it theaters of operation where its weapons have been put to use that may have favored other rivals. When you think of the the customer world, all the governments out there that are looking to buy expensive, very expensive weapon systems, there are usually political considerations associated with that, and some of that may be wanting to carry favor with a geostrategically important country, maybe mm. with a veto power in the United Nations Security Council, or with military presence around the world, and Sweden is not that. <laughs> no. So, it, it's a military contractor, and like you just said, one of the concerns maybe is a limited amount of, of customers, but what are some of the benefits of Saab's uh, contract base? Sure. So, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's definitely a highly competitive industry. I would say that, you know, perhaps some of the competitive advantages there being a Scandinavian kind of company. As we are witnessing the, the, the geostrategic uh, shifts that are taking place right now in Europe's security posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia, I mean, the end of the Cold War was supposed to bring about the end of history, uh, as Francis Fukuyama once put it. But instead, we are, we're kind of witnessing the repetition um, of, of history and, and the threat that many Western European countries and Eastern European countries are now facing uh, with perhaps a more expansionist Russian 
you know, government. As we're looking at that and, and the invasion of Ukraine, um, many countries across Europe, uh, including Germany, for example, which has not had an, uh, a military posture, let's put it that way, um, an active military posture since the Second World War, is now revising its strategy, its national security strategy, and deciding to invest much more heavily in building up its defense capabilities. The idea of kind of just for Europe, for Western Europe and, and Eastern Europe, to sit back and kind of hope that the United States is going to come to their defense and that Russia is no longer a threat to them. Well, those days are gone. And the Scandinavian region shares a lot of border with Russia. And now that Finland, both Finland and Sweden are, are joining NATO, NATO security posture is, is evolving, and as well as those countries and many other countries in Europe. So the customer base in Europe, looking to buttress their defenses to become more self-reliant, they are likely to invest more, much more heavily in, in kind of building those arsenals from European uh, defense contractors. And we're likely to see kind of the, 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 the huge gap that has traditionally existed between U.S.-based defense contractors like Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics or Raytheon Technologies. That gap is likely, I'm not going to, I'm not saying it's going to disappear. Those are likely to remain much bigger in scale. But at least it's going to shrink over the coming years and decades for a company like Saab, based in Sweden. Most of its sales are in the Scandinavian region and, and Europe. That's definitely, unfortunately, a positive development. It is unfortunate, the sort of geopolitical turmoil that is, is leading to the tailwinds here. So does it sell in the U.S. market or not really because of because we have our own uh, defense uh, contractors? Sub does sell in the U.S. market, although the United States does not constitute a major part of their uh, of their sales, roughly around a fifth or so of Saab sales. But Saab has been very intent on expanding its international sales, including in the United States, and they have decided just a couple of years ago to start building a, a factory in the state of Indiana, part of a, what they call a multi-domestic strategy, trying to establish domestic presence in many countries, including the United States, Germany, Brazil, and others, in order to, to kind of become more appealing, to have more appeal to governments in those countries when they try to effectively source new weapons for their militaries, these governments tend to think about national security concerns when, when they source weapons, uh, as well as job creation. So it's, uh, it's you know, it's definitely, uh, I would say, an interesting approach to solve staking and is already starting to bear fruit, as we, we have been seeing from some of the most recent results. So it's becoming increasingly a multinational company, it sounds like. That is correct. I mean, if you take, for example, their jet fighters, uh, the Gripen, they're some of the most capable fourth generation jet fighters in the world. And yet, you know, they have traditionally not been able to sell them where they would have wanted for political, nationalistic reasons uh, for the most part. But the fact that they were shortlisted uh, for consideration for the Indian Air Force, for the Canadian Air Force uh, most recently, those were very high profile going head to head with either the Rafale jet fighters from, from Dussault Aviation from France uh, or uh, the F-35 here uh, made by Lockheed Martin. So it's a very capable
capable fighter jet, and they have been able to sell them to countries and and across virtually all continents, including Brazil and Colombia and Latin America, South Africa and Africa, the Philippines um, and Asia, and and obviously the Swedish Air Force. Let's talk about a part of Saab that is not military equipment. They've got this thing. It's called the Sabertooth AUV. It's an underwater robot. It's been used uh, by energy companies like Equinor uh, to help find uh, the wreck of Ernest Shackleton's ship. This is a really cool underwater robot, but it's not a big part of the business, right? It is not. It's actually a pretty tiny part of the business. The whole COCOMS division in which uh, the Sabertooth is uh, nestled, and I just have to say, what a cool name, Sabertooth, right? right? <laughs> you know, the whole division, which includes making naval ships as well as submarines and torpedoes, constitutes less than a fifth of, of SOP's sales, uh, which are much more heavily geared towards either aeronautics um, or uh, dynamic and surveillance, including you know uh, radar systems, electronic warfare, uh, and, and, and anti-tank missiles, and so on. But the Sabertooth is a very exciting product. Um, it's an autonomous underwater vehicle that can be remotely operated, can go to depth of up to 3,000 miles um, underwater very highly capable sensors um, that allow it to have a very high level of autonomy uh, when it's uh, performing these missions. And as both governments and the private sector invest more and more in deep underwater assets and infrastructure, uh, we are likely to see Sabertooth kind of take a, a, a bigger role to play here um, and definitely showcases the innovation that, that, is, uh, that is there within SOP. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I was thinking about was uh, repairing the underwater cables and things like that. It seems like a perfect job for the Sabertooth. Absolutely. Underwater cables, you think of the internet, for example, you think of pipelines, you know, gas mm -hmm. pipelines under uh, underwater. Now we have been seeing companies that are interested in deep sea mining. Also, you know, potentially could be used for military reasons. You know, recon reconnaissance uh, or other kind of missions that allows you to go kind of uh, autonomously under in, in very deep levels under the sea. So it's it's uh, it's an exciting new product. We recently got earnings from Saab. They looked pretty strong. Sales up 23%, operating income up by 44%. Like you said, it's those uh, those military tailwinds right now. But they did say between 2022 and 2027, they're going to grow about 10%. Uh, compound annual growth rate is is that sort of in line with what you're what you're seeing and what you're forecasting? So yes, I'm actually forecasting that they will be able to beat that guidance. I came into the year expecting that they will beat their guidance for 2023, and so far, so good. They have had two successive quarters of over 20% organic sales uh, growth, um, and they have, as a result, updated their outlook for the year from 10 to 15 percent uh, sales growth to 16 to 20 percent sales growth. I think where they have really shown a lot of resilience and, and strength as well has been on the operating income front, where they have been able to grow operating income at higher rates than sales, showing that they have leverage there. And I think this is also one of the companies. If you kind of stretch your modeling and forecasting a few years out, you can see that they will benefit from scaling, as many manufacturers might. So as sales increase, and they have been pretty healthy with their order intakes and order uh, pipeline showing very, very strong numbers, 
four years plus uh, into the future. They have billions of sales lined up. I think that as they scale their production, um, they're definitely going to, uh, to, to make some margin improvements on those. Um, so, all of that adds to my conviction in, in this company uh, as one important defense actor that's probably going to continue to grow sales and margins at a higher than industry average rates um, and should therefore command a premium um, from a valuation perspective as well. You know, I would be remiss also not to, to mention that they, uh, you know, they have a, a healthier balance sheet than many of their peers. So that adds to the strength and the conviction there. <laughs> we always like to hear that. But if people want to buy it, uh, it's not traded on US brokerages. So, Kind of speaking broadly, what does that mean for an investor if you want to invest in Saab? Right. So that's a challenge. Many investors might be tempted to just go for the uh, over the counter shares or the pink sheets, as you mm-hmm. some might call them. Yeah. Um, so under ticker symbols Saab F or Saab Y. Uh, the problem with those is they are, have very, very thin volumes of trading. So you know, you may get stuck either overpaying or when you're you're trying to sell, you may not be able to fill your order and may have to settle down for a lower price and actual value of the shares. So, you know, it was our recommendation to stay away from those shares, uh, given given how thinly traded they are. I would be much more interested in trading SOP on the Swedish um, or the Stockholm exchange, for that matter. So, you know, and, and one of the platforms that Sort of enables international trading for a relatively low fee. Might be something like Fidelity, but also Charles Schwab and others are, are possible options. Awesome. Well, thank you for breaking this one down for us, Yasser. Happy to. As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.